And so Paul exhorts Timothy to focus on, on growing in that discipline. And uh, Redemption, this idea of God being our redeemer, is really the most core concept that supports that idea and principle of what makes godliness what it is. Why do we respect God? Why do we adore God? Why do we want to thank God? Well, it's just like what we've sung in the hymns already. He's our redeemer. And the more we understand this concept of God redeeming us, the more drawn we'll be to respect and adore and, and want to worship and praise him and express that praise even in obedience. We'll be starting in Matthew 13, if you'd like to start turning there. And while you're turning there, you don't need to turn these passages. I just wanted to put some scriptures on the board to just simply um, show how central this is to our faith. Acts 20:28, 20, you know, talks about how Jesus purchased the church with his own blood. 1 Corinthians 6:20 says, "You, each individual, you have been bought with a price; therefore, glorify God in your body." 1 Peter 1:18 talks about how we have been redeemed, not with perishable things like gold or silver, but with the imperishable quality and value of the blood of Jesus. 2 Peter 2:1, in talking about false teachers, says a consequence of what they're doing is they're denying the Master who bought them. And Revelation 5.9 talks about how Jesus being slain purchased for God with his blood men from every tribe, people, tongue, and nation and has made them into a kingdom of priests and they will reign forever. And that's not just those verses. Uh, Even where it's not explicit, as it's stated here, the concept of redemption is woven through scripture. It is the basis of God's relationship to mankind is redemption. So we're going to start with Matthew chapter 13 to understand this concept, uh, understanding that we're redeemed by a price. Uh, because if you're, if you're like me, those passages that we just looked at, when I read them, um, I'll know that I should be feeling more convicted or motivated because of it. Like I'll read that I've been bought with a price and I'll almost feel the sense of guilt like, wow, I see that and I, I know that's true, but I just, I just don't, I don't grasp it, you know, it, I just need to feel more motivated by it. So if you're, if you're like me, you understand that, that that means a lot, but how does that actually end up getting into your heart? So Matthew chapter 13, 44 through 46. These are two parables, some very well-known parables. Uh, the first one is much more known, and uh, a mistake is frequently made with these two parables in thinking that um, they're speaking of the same thing exactly. They're very similar, uh, but they're such short parables, I think it can, that, that can be an easy assumption to make because there's similarities, they're so close, they're so short. So I'm going to read these parables, but just when verse 45 begins the second parable, see if you can notice the shift. See if you can notice how the parable transitions in its subject despite the familiarity. So this is on how we're redeemed by a price. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. From joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. So you've got these two parables that are both uh, relating things to the kingdom of heaven. And then that's another concept that can be hard to understand and grasp. You know, well, what is the kingdom of heaven? Uh, The kingdom of heaven, I think, if you were to think very simply about that, It's simply the place where God's glory is. And God's glory uh, in the kingdom, I think, is really in four chief components. Uh, And they're all P words, maybe be helpful for memory. But God's person, his position, his power, and his prosperity. 
are all fully found within his kingdom. His person, his power, his position, and his prosperity are all found in his kingdom. And his kingdom is where the fullness of all that that entails is actually shared with those who are there. So citizenship in God's kingdom means that all the glory of God's person, his power, his position, his prosperity, all of those qualities, their fullest maximum measurement is poured out upon the citizenship of those who dwell there. So the first parable, when somebody just so happens to stumble upon these things, like this treasure that's been hidden away in this field, this person just kind of finds it, not purposely looking for it, And again, the treasure is the kingdom here, right? So this person is stumbling upon, again, this idea of God's person, his power, his prosperity, his position, all being being available to be shared. And the invitation is come and take part in these things. I'll pour them out upon you. And this position over joy, over stumbling upon these things, what does he do? Because of his joy, this is worth everything he has. It doesn't matter how much he's accumulated. It doesn't matter what his investments are. Uh, it doesn't matter what you know, his standing in society is. Apparently, this treasure is worth all of it. It doesn't matter how old or how young he is. If he's in his 80s and has maintained all his investments over time, if he's a CEO of a company, well, this little treasure in this field is worth, apparently, all of that. And the key thing is we never actually see what kind of treasure it was, besides that it's like the kingdom. The idea is that the value of the treasure is understood through what's exchanged for it. Because just in terms of normal sales, if I'm going to buy something, if I'm making an exchange, I'm saying that what I'm purchasing or redeeming is actually more valuable than what I'm giving up to receive it, right? So the value of this treasure is seen in what's exchanged for it. That's the point of the parable. So we can understand that. Now the second parable. What is the kingdom in the second parable? Is it the pearl? Notice in verse 45, the kingdom of heaven is the merchant. So when I said that oftentimes people make a mistake and they'll say that these are just the same thing, that both times this is us finding the kingdom and just doing the same thing in both parables. So let me ask you a question. Are you the kingdom? Are you the kingdom? If the merchant is the kingdom, and if the kingdom is God's person, his position, his power, uh, his prosperity, then the merchant is God. The merchant is God using everything that he has, all his person, his reputation, his name, all his resources, his position, and everything involved with his position and his authority, everything involved with all that he has and all that he is. He's looking and seeking something. He's looking for pearls. And, well, he finds one pearl, just one, of great price. What does he do with it? He sells everything he has to get this one single pearl, to redeem it. Can God do that? Can God sell everything he has for one pearl? And I'm I'm going to suggest you are the pearl. You are the pearl. And so am I. God's looking for people, but when he just finds one, he'll sell everything he has for that one. So can can God really do that? Uh, Turn to Colossians chapter 1. One of the 
interesting things about the kingdom, the person of God, the position that God has, the prosperity of God, um, the power that God has. One of the things about all of that is really Jesus was the full embodiment of those realities. Jesus is the fullness of every one of those qualities. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 17, and just think about that with the kingdom as we're thinking about how Jesus embodies those things. Colossians chapter 1, 15 through 17. He is the image of the invisible invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So, he's the person of God manifested. In verse 16, For by him all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, the prosperity of God, all his resources, everything that God has at his disposal, it's in Jesus. All things that have been created through him and for him, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. In him is the highest position of God. In him is the power of God, the power that created everything, the power that sustains and controls everything. It's all embodied in Jesus Christ. So just hold that thought for a moment. To illustrate this, um, I looked up something that I, I remembered in my mind that people do. So some, some of you might be really interested in old, classic, antique cars. Um, and what car collectors do, like, I mean like rich car collectors who have like museums and go to auctions. Uh, there's something called barn finds. I don't know if you guys have heard of barn finds, but basically what a barn find is, is a car collector will find like an unbelievably expensive and rare car just rusting and rotting away in somebody's yard. And then they'll, they'll redeem it, they'll buy it, so that they can fix it up and sell it. And there was a Ferrari 250 GTO that was in someone's front yard, rusting away, and the kids were using it as like play equipment. They would like slide on its hood. And then somebody sold that for millions of dollars after they bought it from the guy, right? I don't, know if, I don't know what a Ferrari 250 GTO is, so I had to look that up, but it's like a really nice car, like a really important Ferrari. Again, I don't know anything about cars. You might not know either, but it's worth millions of dollars, apparently, right? But this thing was just rotting in someone's front yard. But this person was seeking a fine car. This is exactly what he's looking for. So he noticed something with this Ferrari that drew him to it, and he knew that he had the resources, the interest, and the ability that if he got possession of this rusted old you know, bucket, basically, of parts, he knew what he could do with that car. He knew how valuable that was, even if in its current condition it did not look like a resemblance of its real glory. But he knew he could get it there. Isn't, isn't that what God does with us? Like, what if when God finds this great pearl, it's all just like corroded and like dirt and muck. And it's like, you can see signs of it, but it's like in some kind of hard substance that you're going to have to like get through in order to really get it. You're going to have to wash it and purify it. What if, that's, what if that's a part of the story? That God is looking for fine pearls, but what he finds when he finds this pearl of a great price, what if it just doesn't look like the glory that he knows it really represents or is? And think about this as well. That person who bought that Ferrari and what people will do with these barn finds, they won't pay just like 
hundreds of dollars, even for a rusty little car that probably in its real value would probably only be worth that in its current condition, they'll still pay hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars to get it in the first place because of still, again, what, what it is, right? Um, so does God, does God have the ability to spend resources to get his possession? Think about what we read in Colossians about Jesus being the fullness of God's person, position, power. If, if God were to sell the universe and everything in it that's visible, would that have been worth as much as what he did with Jesus? If he were to take all the money in the world, and if he were to have all of that money and sell it all to get you, would that, would that have been as, as expensive as selling out Jesus for you. And I mean, you name it, like selling out all his angels, heaven and all the existence of heaven, would that have been as expensive as selling out Jesus, right? And we kind of understand this, don't we? Like people are worth more than money and things, aren't they? Like what, what would a person give to save their own children? What would they not sacrifice even if their child is sick with cancer or some disease that's hurting them, what wouldn't they give of all that they possess to make that better, right? Now here's, here's the scary thing. You remember that I will give up only what I think is less valuable than what I'm getting. If I'm paying a million dollars for a rusty Ferrari 250 GTO, I'm probably hoping that when I repair it, that this is probably going to sell an auction for like $10 million or something, right? So I'm going to get a $9 million return, which is pretty substantial, right? So I'll only give up what I think is more valuable. If God is willing to sell everything he has for you, and if he sold Jesus to demonstrate his love and value of you, then how much does he really value you? How much are you really worth to God? And if you're like me, it's kind of scary, actually, to think that if Jesus was crucified for me, then that means that God, in a sense, values me more. Uh, turn to Deuteronomy 25. I want to just continue to build on this point. Really, this is all going to serve as the basis of the lesson but redeemed by justice. Uh, this is another concept of redemption that's in Scripture. Um, and as you're turning to Deuteronomy, just think about in your mind, how expensive is justice? Like, does justice have a price? And you could maybe think of some instances that uh, relate to that idea. Think about bail bonds. Uh, bail is expensive, especially if you committed a pretty serious crime, right? Think about lawyer fees, uh, court fees. Um, but you think about even if you're sentenced, oftentimes if your sentence is very serious, there might be a price that you're able to pay, but it's going to be, it's going to be expensive. And the idea is if you pay that money, the promise is you can be liberated from the sentence or the judgment, prison time, whatever it is. Some sentences, though, can't be paid off with money. But here's the problem. People who have high reputation, people who have like a respected person 
in the world. People who have a lot of prosperity or people with great power, people with high positions. Do you ever get frustrated at how they seem to be exempt from justice? Because they can use those resources to get out of consequences, right? Because justice oftentimes has a price that they can pay. Whether it's the payment of their influence, people around them, their position, whatever it is, usually they can pay it. And if you, if you look for examples, you can find just so many examples of ongoing decades-long court cases of CEOs and politicians who have been accused of something that oftentimes they're guilty of, but because they have such a vast resource at their disposal, they're able to either minimize the consequences as much as possible, to preserve their glory as much as they can, or vindicate themselves out of the, out of the position completely of guilt and just be able to move on without any consequences, right? So oftentimes people will use their glory to get out of the consequence of justice because oftentimes justice is something that you can uh, purchase your way out of. Look at Deuteronomy 25, uh, 1 through 3. If there is a dispute between men and they go to court and the judges decide their case and they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked, then it shall be if the wicked man deserves to be beaten, the judge shall then make him lie down and be beaten in his presence with the number of stripes according to his guilt. He may beat him 40 times, but no more, so that he does not beat him with many more stripes than these, and your brother is not degraded in your eyes. This is a really unusual law. <laughs> But the idea is, even in justice, God wanted to preserve people's reputation. He didn't want people to be treated like an animal. Uh, God wanted, if somebody was even to be punished for wickedness, for them to remember that this was still their brother and they need to treat him with dignity. So there was, there was a fixed boundary on what the Israelites could do to each other for punishment. And of course it mentions, you know, if there's a dispute and the righteous are justified and the wicked are condemned, then, you know, this was, this was civil and just. So we're going to relate this to Jesus, but we just think for a moment, uh, what would somebody give to preserve their honor? What would somebody give to protect their name, right? Uh, and how important, how important is it for somebody to be treated with dignity and respect, right? Um, you look at the last part of this verse again, all of these things were set in their boundaries so that their brother would not be degraded or despised or humiliated. Um, so should not God then allow this boundary for himself? Shouldn't God keep himself in some kind of position where he's not lost his power, his position, his person, his reputation, um, all his honor and all his glory? Because think about it, is justice a valuable thing to God? Justice might just be, actually, one of the most valuable resources at God's disposal. Justice is like the one thing that people in Scripture who trusted in God, it was like the thing they trusted in God for was justice. When everything else, when they had lost everything else, all their resources, and they were degraded and humiliated, they would count on the fact that God would still bring justice. So justice is one of God's most valuable attributes. Uh, first, turn to uh, Matthew chapter um, 26. Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 
So in verse 51, just with the idea of somebody with power and glory, they'll usually use their resources to try to minimize consequence or try to draw things out or protect themselves, right? If you look at Matthew 26, verse 51, and behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place. For all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? How then will the scripture be fulfilled which say that it must happen this way? One of the shocking things is the way that Jesus suffered was not because he did not have the ability to protect his honor or dignity. When you move on in the passage, you'll get to the place in verse 67 where his face is being spit on, first by the Jews, and then later the uh, Roman cohort, hundreds of soldiers, soldiers all come together and they take their turn spitting in his face. The idea is Jesus willingly, and what we'll read, even the father with his own son gladly, fully spent the resource of his justice just to show how much he's willing to spend for you. Turn to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. Um, So starting in verse 5, so we actually sang this earlier, uh, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed And if you look forward at verse 10 and 11 as well, uh, it says, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. The good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge and the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. So, God had this law in Deuteronomy, only 40 stripes because that will preserve the dignity of the person being punished. It will keep their person honored in some way, even in punishment. So I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but one of the most important things about Jesus choosing and God putting things together to where Jesus would not be delivered to the Jews ultimately, but the Romans, the Romans had no limit to how many times they would beat and flog people. And so when Jesus was scourged, there was no limit. There was no 40 stripes uh, to make sure that their dignity is preserved. No, Jesus was stripped. He was mocked. One by one, they spat in his face. They took their turns, hailing him as king of the Jews, and they put him on a cross without any clothing on his body so everybody could take their turns laughing and ridiculing. Right? Um, Why take that limit away? Look at verse 10 again. He would render himself as a guilt offering. You know, guilt offerings in the Old Testament, it was an animal. So for one, God was trying to keep his people from being treated like animals. Do you know that Jesus was treated like an animal? Have you ever seen somebody treated like an animal? Has your child ever been bullied? Have you ever been bullied? 
How does it, how does it make you feel when you're treated like an animal? Folks, the reason why God did not subject himself to those boundaries is because as an animal would just have its throat slit at the altar and it would be offered, Jesus' blood would not have held the same value if it just came out of his body in a moment. Why be flogged? Why be spit on? Why be whipped brutally over and over again? Because a quick death would not have been as expensive for God. It would not have demanded enough resource. It would not have shown just how far he's willing to go for you. It wouldn't have shown that justice, God's most valuable, most prized possession, what all his people have always hoped in from him, it would not have been enough to reveal that he's willing to spend that to its bankruptcy just to get you and me to pay attention and listen. Um, Turn to Leviticus chapter 27. So God had to spend justice as a resource, but God had some rules in the Old Testament that a person actually couldn't be redeemed unless they were family. Uh, So Leviticus 25 Leviticus 25, verse 47. Now if the means of a stranger or of a sojourner with you become sufficient and a countryman of yours becomes so poor with regard to him as to sell himself to a stranger who is sojourning with you or to the descendants of a stranger's family, then he shall have redemption right after he has been sold. One of his brothers may redeem him or his uncle or his uncle's son may redeem him or one of his relatives from his family may redeem him or if he prospers, he may redeem himself. So God had this rule in place that really you can't, you can't redeem somebody who's sold out or bankrupt serving somebody because of that. You can't, you can't redeem them unless you're close enough in blood relation to them. Um, another challenging thing about this is if you go to chapter 27, uh, look at chapter 27, verse 29. This actually makes this more difficult for God. Uh, 20, 27, 29. No one who may have been set apart Uh, ESV will say, for destruction among men shall be ransomed, he shall surely be put to death. Uh, The idea is, if somebody has committed a crime where the sentence is death, no family member can redeem them. There's no money that you can pay. There's There's no thing that you can do or give that can possibly make up for the fact this person must die beyond redemption. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, at the end of verse 3. Just that at the very end of the verse, it says, When we were indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So I don't know if you've come to realize this, if you have not um, responded to the gospel, but one of the common teachings of the Bible is that because of our sin, We're children of wrath. We're devoted to destruction. That makes things pretty difficult. Because you know what that means is lawfully we shouldn't be able to be redeemed. Because somebody has to pay that price. Death has to be the ransom, right? 
And in the first place, you think about the kingdom of heaven, that's a whole new kind of citizenship. You're being redeemed into a new country, right? My sister-in-law, she's, she's Japanese. She's from Japan. And when she married my brother, that didn't just automatically make her an American citizen. She had to apply for something called a green card. And a green card would mean that she would be considered an American citizen. And you would think, okay, they're married. And pretty clear then that she's, you know, here to stay. Uh, it's amazing how, how expensive, how difficult, and just how frustrating that process really is. Uh, that wasn't just something that they could do quickly. The, the stack of paperwork that they had to put together of past text conversations, Facebook conversations, they had to prove beyond any shadow of a doubt they were definitively, absolutely married, not just because she was trying to get out of a country, but because they had a real, true relationship, right? And that would be sufficient evidence to give her a green card, right? But again, it's expensive, it's difficult. Proving that is really, really hard. Um, so somehow relationship has to be proven, and that can be a really difficult process that can be expensive. Um, and really getting married, you're taking on more responsibility to take care of somebody else and share so much with them, right? Uh, turn to Ruth chapter 4. There's actually a whole book of the Bible, and that book is Ruth, dedicated to actually this concept explicitly. Uh, Ruth was a foreigner, and just by God's providence, through death, she ended up attached to this woman, Naomi. And by God's providence, this woman, Naomi, was attached to Boaz, who was able to redeem them. Just as through death, we become attached to Jesus, and Jesus is attached to God, right? So it's a beautiful story. Um, but in Ruth chapter 4, verse 6, before Boaz redeems uh, Ruth and uh, Naomi, in verse 6, there's somebody else who's a closer family relative. And if you look at verse 6, the closest relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance, redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of it, redemption, for I cannot redeem it. The idea is, I would do this, but it's too expensive. The burden is too great to take on for me. I don't have room for this. Mind you, he would take Naomi's property, but he would not take Naomi and Ruth. Because taking them on, Ruth, this foreigner, Naomi, the, uh, the widow, um, it was too much, and it would endanger his inheritance, right? It was too expensive. If we understand how expensive we are, how many burdens we have, if we understand how costly it is for God to prove his relation to us, we can truly begin to be exasperated by, again, how far God is willing to go and what he's willing to put at risk to redeem us. Turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Again, this is, not, this is not just a principle found in just one place. These are principles that transcend one circumstance or culture of time or uh, uh, circumstance of events. These, these are principles that are woven through God's plan. So in Hebrews chapter 2, you think, how can you prove you're related to somebody when you don't know them? <laughs> think about if somebody's been estranged from their parents since they were born, how do you prove your relation to them? You really have to go quite some distance to do something like that, just like my brother and his wife had to go quite some distance to prove their marriage. Look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10 and 11. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, 
to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sacrifices and those who are, or sanctifies, and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. You know how you prove you're related to somebody in God's eyes? One way is when you show how much you care. You know, there was a wise king once where there are these two women who came before him. They both had little children and uh, they were prostitutes. One woman in the night actually slept on her child, and the child died in the night. And she took her dead child, put it with the other woman, and then took her child to her. They came before this wise king, and they were both yelling at each other, you know, screaming, this is my child, and the dead one's yours, the living one's mine. And really, how do you, how do you figure this out? Well, this wise king said, hand me a sword, and we'll cut the child in half. So there we go. You get half, you get half, everything's fair. And one woman spoke up immediately and said, no, you let her have him. Do not kill the boy. And this wise king discerned, there you go. There's the mother. Because she cared in a way the other did not. The other woman was fine for the child to be struck in two. You know how God proves his relationship to us here? He'll do anything to keep us from dying. Even if that means we have to be sold into slavery for a while. Even if that means we live in fear under the rule of his enemy. For us to forget about God. To forget that he's our father. He'll bear the expense of that burden. And he'll do it gladly. Because that's how much you're worth to God. That's how expensive you are. And the burden of repairing your mind and bringing you into his household, God is not like Naomi's closest relative who wouldn't take on that burden. No. Just like that man who redeemed that Ferrari, you imagine when he figured out how expensive it would be to restore it, he didn't go, wow, what did I do? (laughs) I didn't realize repairing this rust bucket was going to be quite so costly. It just makes sense. By redeeming that piece of junk, you're acknowledging in the redemption your full intention to restore it. You're acknowledging it in the down payment, the deposit, right? It's not surprising to God that we are 
full of burdens heavy to bear. But in Hebrews 2, God proves his relation and his care so that we have confidence to know he's invested more than we can ever imagine to prove he is the one who cares, even when nobody else did. Even when nobody else understood the price, the position, God knew and he's willing to take on that burden. He's willing to pay that price. He's willing to be our source of help to redeem us. If God was willing to do all those things, would you let him redeem you? Have you ever gotten a gift that you, were, that you knew it was expensive when somebody was giving it to you, but they crossed out the price tag or like they ripped it off and you looked for it and it's like, oh, pfft, they, they did it. They took off the price tag. So you, what you did is you looked it up on the internet, right? Because you weren't, you weren't going to give up that easy. And you knew it was expensive and then you find out the price and it's like, wow. And then you message the person, you call them and you say, thank you. That's what God has done. You know, to accept the grace of Jesus Christ, to be moved to repent, is not the full comprehension of the value of Christ. It's just the beginning. It's just the beginning. So much of the work of our faith is learning to really comprehend just how much God spends for you and for me. And think about this again. What does somebody do with a pearl? You know, the first parable in the beginning of the lesson, a treasure, you hide and you protect treasure. Like, we don't carry bags of our income on our backs everywhere we go, right? That's put away somewhere. It's deposited, right? So you, you hide and you protect your treasure, but what do you do with pearls? If you even look up on the internet, I actually did this, looked up, like, what do you do with pearls? Well, you put them on necklaces, you wear them on your ears, you put them on your cell phone cases, apparently. Like, you decorate things with pearls. So turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. And look at verse 7. When he's talked about what he's done in us to bring us into the fullness of his glorious kingdom, he says, it was all so that in the ages to come he might show their surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You know why God has done all these things? Does he want you to like prove your obedience or pay him back somehow? No. God simply wants to put a spotlight on you and show the beauty of what he's purchased and done. That's it. Everything that God has called us to be and do, everything that's commanded of us, is all just to show the surpassing riches of how much he's willing to spend on his children. Don't you want to have a father like that? So what do you do with a lesson like this? One thing. What does this teach you about who God is? What, is this, what does this teach you about the kind of character God has? What does this teach you about the kind of passion he has for you? What do, what do these things teach you? You know, so often in the Bible, the great point of things the apostles write is, think about what God did when he redeemed you. Just think about that. And now we can talk about applications, right? So if you're here and you have not obeyed the gospel, all this work that God has done that we've talked about, 
it could actually be wasted. Just like somebody who has had their bail paid still has to show up to court, you could still show up to court and all these things have been done and you show up to that court date and you're still guilty. It's all been wasted. It's just been a total waste. Whatever you're invested in, whatever you're seeking, even if in your mind there is glory, the glory revealed in Jesus Christ so far surpasses it, it really is as if there is no glory in anything else in comparison. And if you're here and you need the prayers of the saints in any way, please come forward. We stand and sing an invitation song.